Now for today, we have a very special day because it's going to be a little bit different. We have a friend with us from Arizona and we've all already apologized to him for this ridiculous weather that we're having. So we're especially grateful that he is stuck with us and that he's here even through this very interesting Minnesota spring. Um, he is the executive pastor of Creative Arts down there in Arizona and um, I've met him. He's a wonderful guy. We had so much fun this morning. So you guys are in for a real treat. Please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome. Welcome to Jeremy. It is great to be with you guys, uh, especially from Arizona. When I, when I flew out yesterday, uh, everyone was talking about it. it was 72 degrees in Arizona. And that was like a cold front coming through. So everyone was bundling up. It's all over Facebook. People are staying inside because it's so cold. So it's great to be with you guys. Uh, I love this church. I'm, I, I got to tell you, it's a little awkward because I feel like I know you, but you don't know me. Uh, I'm a pod richner. I'm, I'm one of them. And so uh, I got to tell you, I tune in every week. I love what you guys are doing. I love this church. And I, I really do feel like it's like uh, my second home here, but you guys have never seen me before. So it's a little weird, but it's great to be with you guys. Uh, I, I brought my wife out here with me, Michelle. We've got four kids. I'll show you a picture of our growing little family from Arizona. Uh, there they are. They get their mom's looks, thankfully. Uh, I just got to tell you, though, it's, it's so great to be out here with you guys. Um, I, I've got immense respect uh, for Greg Boyd. Uh, Greg has mentored me this last year and spoken into my life. And uh, just an incredible man of God. And the way he sees God and the way he follows God are truly an inspiration. You guys are blessed beyond belief. So uh, just, just want let to that, let that be known uh, right up front. That's, that's my conclusion on you guys. So uh, the other thing is I just love this community. There's something uh, special, something unique about this, this place and this, this church. And again, part of the, the difficulty is whenever you get used to something, you, you fail to see it objectively because you just kind of know what you know. But it really is incredible to see what God's doing in, the, in this community and in your midst. So uh, praise God for you guys' faithfulness, and it's a joy uh, to be a part of Today what I want to talk about is something that uh, is just kind of radical for my personality and something that I've had to learn and, and hopefully it, it would be a blessing for you today as well. I want to talk about good intentions. You see, we live in the world of good intentions so much so that you may not even realize uh, that, that you have these good intentions and how often you think about your intentions. I mean, we, we justify so many of the things that we do based on what we intended to happen and we kind of play it out this way. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, we decided to, to do something special for our kids. Uh, see, i got to tell you something interesting about me. I'm a New York Yankees fan. So, uh, okay, wow, boost. They said, I just want you to know, they said, I said, will I get boost for that? They said, no, Woodland wouldn't boo you for that. So I don't know, I'm special or something, I don't know. Uh, okay, so get ready for this, because if you boo that part, just wait. So each of my kids has a Yankee middle name. All right, you can pray for me later, okay? But I think it's, a, it's a, a testament to how amazing my wife is that she went along with this idea. So each of our, our kids have a middle name based off of a, a New York Yankees player. Uh, we just thought, what's the point of middle names anyway? Let's have some fun with them. So we gave each of our kids an interesting story to tell. Uh, so our oldest son's name is Gavin. His middle name is Mattingly uh, Jernigan. Uh, so Mattingly is after Don Mattingly, who was my favorite player uh, as a kid. I grew up watching baseball, I grew up watching Don Mattingly, and just thought he was the greatest. Well, Don Mattingly has since retired. He's now the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers, if you follow baseball at all. 
One of the great things about Arizona is that spring training, uh, so many teams come down to Arizona for spring training. And so in March, we get to see tons of baseball, and it's really cheap. And there's not a ton of people there. It's just a great experience uh, if you're a baseball fan. So a couple years ago, Michelle and I thought, how great would it be if we could try to get Gavin to meet Don? To meet the guy that he's named after, this would be a really cool experience. So two years ago, we tried it, we brought him to a game, and it ended up being a split squad. Dom Mattingly wasn't there, we were disappointed, and we're like, alright, well, we'll try again later. So last year, uh, we tried again, the Dodgers were playing a game, we went to it, uh, we got there an hour early. Which if you've ever been to a spring training game, nobody goes an hour early, okay? So there's like nobody there, the field's empty, we're just kind of waiting, because I knew uh, we're going to have one shot at this. And so we get there, and, and Gavin's like, Dad, what are we doing? I thought we were going to a baseball game, there's not even players on the field, I'm hungry, I want peanuts, you know, the whole thing, he was a little kid, I think he was like four, and so I'm like, hang on, buddy, because we're going to try to meet Tom Mattingly. I'm like, this is the guy, I'm explaining, he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm like, okay, just hang with me, hang with me. So we wait, and we wait. We wait, and we wait, and finally, about 15 minutes before the game is scheduled to begin, I noticed some stirring in the dugout. Now, you have to understand, uh, I, I had prepped for this, okay? Uh, I want to show you a sign that, that we made, that we brought with us. Uh, we were ready to go, right? So please, Don, please take a pic with my son, Gavin Mattingly. He's ready to go. I'm ready to go. We got our Yankees gear on. Like, we, we are ready for this moment. So finally, after all this waiting, and we're getting everything ready, I see some stir in the dugout. Some of the bat boys come, come walking up, you know? I'm just waiting. I'm watching, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then I see Don Mattingly. He's here. This is my chance. This is my moment. So Don goes into the dugout. I lean over the rail, and I realize I got one shot at this. One shot. So I yell out the first thing that comes to my mind. Hey, Don, I I named a kid after you. Can I get a picture? (laughs) Which then I realized how creepy that sounds. (laughs) And so I'm that guy leaning over the edge, yelling out to a complete stranger that has named my firstborn child after him. I'm going, oh, this is going bad. I wouldn't even take a picture with me. You know, I'm like, this is weird. And so I'm standing there. I'm kind of having this awkward, vulnerable moment, uh, leaning over the the rail. and And Don looks over at me and he goes, all right. Don Mattingly, and so he comes walking over, and I cannot believe myself. I'm going, Don, Gavin, Gavin, come on. So I bring Gavin over, we go up to the front of the rail, and here's a picture of my son talking to Don Mattingly. Amazing moment here. Look at that. So he has this unbelievable moment. Don is a class act. He's talking to my son. They're having this great moment. Now, you got to understand, this is my favorite player growing up. So I'm a little kid right now, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Don, it's so great to meet you, this is incredible. And then Gavin just thinks the world of this, he's, he's like, you know, having this adult conversation with them, it's just this hilarious moment, and I'm thinking, how cool is this? And parents, you know, there's just those moments that you, you think, I will forever remember this as long as I live. I mean, it's just one of those moments. And I thought, if there ever was a Dad of the Year award, me. <laughs> I am a shoo for this thing. I mean, wh- how can it get any better than this? You know, years from now, when I'm long dead, Gavin will be telling his friends the story of when his dad took him to meet Don Mattingly. You know, what a great moment. I mean, it could not have gotten any cooler. Until. In that moment, I'm, I'm soaking it in. I'm enjoying it. Don looks directly at me and asks me a question. He says, hey, you have a baseball for me to sign? That would make sense. (laughs) Instantly, I mean, I'm melting on the inside. You know, I'm going, who doesn't bring a baseball to meet Don Mattingly? 
I, I, I didn't think I was, I mean, like, what am I doing here? And so, you know, instantly I'm just thinking, I've gone from, you know, dad of the year to worst dad ever. Gavin's going to be in counseling later in life going, yeah, my dad didn't bring a ball. You know, I don't know why. It's like, how do you explain this? And so I'm standing there, Gavin's looking at me like, dad, give him the ball. And I'm like, I don't have a ball. And so, you know, Don just gives me this look like, really? You really didn't, you, you waited, you got a sign, but no, no. So he goes, hold on. He leans over and he goes, hey, get me a ball. Instantly, ball boy, bat boy, whatever, comes running out, hands him a ball. Here he goes, sir. He, he looks at me and he goes, you have a pen? <laughs> I'm thinking, Don, not my favorite player anymore, all right? I'm like, no, I don't have a pen either. And so he, at this point, we got like a whole little mob around us. So he grabs a pen from another fan, just grabs it from him, and he takes this baseball that he provided, and he writes, Gavin Mattingly, all my best, Don Mattingly, hands it to my son. Back to dad of the year, right? <laughs> Love that. But here's the thing. I had great intentions and not a whole lot more. Uh, and you've been in that moment where you've watched like, well, here's what I thought would happen. Here's what I was planning to happen. It just didn't exactly play out that way. And that's how life often is for us. So much so that we rarely step back long enough to go, yeah, we, we kind of do this, don't we? You've, you've no doubt heard the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And we just understand this as a culture. It's kind of just something that, that you get used to in life. But here's what I, I find fascinating. Do you notice that oftentimes when we're judging uh, our own uh, actions, we, we judge ourselves based on our good intentions. Well, here's what I was intending to happen. But when we look at what other people around us do, we don't judge them by their good intentions. We judge them by their results. So I'll look at you and go, oh, I can't believe you did that. Now, you probably had your own set of good intentions for why you were going to originally do it differently, but we don't factor that in. And that's, that's part of what we have to keep in mind as we look at our passage today. And part of what happens as a church, we've got to look around and go, hey, uh, we got to learn to stop judging people uh, differently than we judge ourselves. And we have this kind of standard sometimes where we go, oh, I'm, I'm going to hold you to the results, but, but not me. I'm going to be different. So today I want to look at a passage found in Luke chapter 22 uh, about the Apostle Peter. And, and Peter's just this remarkable guy, but, but here is, is a real failing for Peter. Now, like I said, I'm a podritioner. Uh, so earlier this week, I was on a flight, and I was you know, pulling up my, uh, my, my podcast, and I watched the Good Friday message that Greg did last week. And I heard him do the exact same story that I had planned for today. And I had this spiritual panic attack. I thought, how am I supposed to, I gotta, I gotta change everything. I mean, what am I supposed to do? And so I'm having this intense prayer time on the plane as I'm trying to figure out what do I do now that Greg just did it. And God, his spirit gently reassured me and said, Jeremy, you're not remotely as smart as Greg is. Yours will sound nothing like his. Don't worry about it. I said, okay. So I'm going to look at a story. I understand Greg looked at it last week. He did a phenomenal job. Uh, I'm going to look at a different point of view because I'm, I, I can't even compete with Greg, so I'm not going to try. But I want to look at what God has taught me from this passage. I'm going to look at it in Luke. Greg, uh, Greg talked out of Matthew. We're going to look at a little different version of it. And I think this story is remarkable for us and maybe how you uh, define yourself, your, your position with God, how you kind of approach God, uh, how, how you have confidence before him or not confidence. I think a lot of it stems from what we see in this story. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 22 and begin reading in verse 31. Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, 
Before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So you have this incredible moment where, where Peter gives his good intentions to Jesus, right? Do you see what they are? I mean, this is the best intention you can get. No, I'll go to with you to prison or to death. Hey, Jesus, I'm in. You can count on me. Nothing that you have to worry about, I, I, I'm in. And yet this is a weird kind of a, a setup to his story because Jesus starts it by saying this, this, this request of Satan. This is a little strange. He asked, some versions say he demanded uh, of, of Jesus to, to be able to afflict them. Now, this is the only time you have that, that Greek word in the New Testament. So it's kind of a weird standout moment. Uh, and I kind of think back to like the opening chapters of the book of Job. And it's like really the only parallel I, I can see here where, where you have in, those, in that story, you have Satan coming before God asking if he can afflict Job and, and God allows it. So you have this bizarre kind of a setup where Satan's requesting to, to you know, uh, afflict uh, the disciples in these final moments where Jesus is about to, to go to the cross. And so Satan's very dialed in here. And, and you're going, well, who's Simon? I'm confused. I'm talking about Peter. Peter's got four different versions of his name in the New Testament. Now, this was normal in their culture. For us, uh, a lot of us as Americans speak one language, and so we're like, why would you have multiple versions of your name? Uh, but you have to understand in this culture, this was totally normal. A lot of times it would either be depending on the language of the conversation, the purpose of the conversation, or, or maybe the setting of where you were having it, and you kind of go in and out of, of different names, and you see this uh, throughout Scripture. But this is Simon, or this is Peter, uh, and I think Jesus is using one of Peter's early names, uh, maybe a, a pre-Christian name, if you will, because Peter's about to go through an identity crisis. In fact, in John 21, after Jesus dies, Peter goes back to his old life. He goes back to fishing. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. He doesn't know what his job is, doesn't know who he is, what his identity is. And it all begins in this moment of an identity crisis. And that's why we see the power of good intentions. You see, our identity is often wrapped up in the intentions that we have. And when those intentions don't play out the way we envisioned, our identity is along for the ride. Now, Peter's going to have this identity crisis, and, and if we're honest, I think a lot of us can relate with that. Maybe in your story, you have that moment where you, you knew the person you used to be, the things you used to, to do, the, the desires you used to have, and you go, oh, God delivered me from that. I'm not that person anymore. I'm a new creation. And you can, for some of you, that's a, that's a definite moment. You go, that was the line in the sand for me. It, it happened then. And now I'm this new life, this new creation. I'm a, I'm a kingdom person. I'm living totally differently. And, and you're like, praise God for that. But if we're honest... Aren't there times where those old desires creep back in? Those old thoughts creep back in? And maybe you, you ask God, God, I don't want to be that person. Why do I still have that? Why is that still there? I, I said I was done with that. I'm following you now. And yet, that never seems to fully go away. So Peter's having this kind of a moment where he knows who he wants to be, but he's going to get challenged. He's going to go through this wavering type moment. In verse 33, we get these intentions, and I, I believe you know, that, that Peter meant the intentions. These, these were good intentions. This is the desire of his heart, and yet he has no idea what's coming. That's the problem with intentions. We make them in a current moment where we know the situation, we know the, the circumstances, and we, we forecast that into the future, but we don't know what's coming. And so we say, yeah, here's what I would do, or here's how I would do it, and yet you have no idea what's ahead. I think about every time a, a couple gets married. I've had the, the chance to do a handful of weddings. And whenever you're talking with a couple leading up to their, their ceremony, uh, the way they talk about their marriage is just great, isn't it? They talk about all these sweet things, and it's like just poetry just oozing out of their mouth. They're going, oh, it's so romantic. Oh, I love the way you guys are going to do this, and that's going to be great. And you have real love, and, and you talk about that. And they get to the wedding ceremony. 
And you hear the vowels, and you're like, oh, it's ooey-gooey, and it's just so great, and you're sitting there like, I, I love this. And, and then if you're that person, if you remember back, you go to the honeymoon, and it's great, and then about the time the honeymoon starts wearing off, you realize uh, that your spouse squeezes a toothpaste from the middle instead of the end, and you want to lose your mind over it. Right? Have you ever been there? You're going, wait a minute. Or they put the, 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 the cups back in the cupboard, upside down. You're going, that's not the way you do it. Or men, how about this? Your wife eats the last of your leftovers in the fridge. Can I get an amen? And you go, time out. This was not part of the agreement. I did not expect this when we got married. Or any other number of weird quirkiness that you have in your marriage. And so this is the funny part about marriage is we have these vows, these commitments we make, and we've got no clue what's coming. And then you talk to anybody that's been married for a while and go, oh, yeah, here's what we thought, and here's what we actually had. And I so appreciated Greg telling his story last week of him and Shelly and their journey and what they, they thought and then they got into it and they realized, oh, this is hard, this is difficult, we're going to have to work through this because that's real life. But our intentions come at the beginning, we go, here's how I would be in a marriage. Here's how I would be as a husband. Here's how I would be as a wife. And yet you don't really know until you get there. And then sometimes we find ourselves in those moments where you're, you're having to explain yourself based on your intentions, right? Where, where you're, you're, the results are not good. And so you're going, hold on, hold on, before you judge me, let me, let me explain. A few months ago, uh, we took our, our family to the park. And, uh, you know, when you got four little kids, it's good to get them out and let them run their energy out. And so we're at a park, and it's this really big park kind of by our house, and, and they're having a great time. Now, earlier that week, my oldest son, Gavin, had just learned how to ride a bike all by himself. And anytime your oldest child kind of hits a milestone, you feel pretty good as a parent, don't you? You start feeling like, you know what? I helped you with that. And look at you, look at you now. Look at, I never thought you could do that. Look at you now. And you start looking at your other kids like, you guys have got potential. All right. What, what are you ready for? And so I'm feeling pretty good about myself as a dad. I'm looking at my other children going, all right, guys, we're all ready for the next level. So Gavin just learned how to ride a bike. Let, let's just step that up. So we're at the park one day. We're having a great time. My kids had kind of gravitated to this one area of the park. They had the bucket swings, if you've ever seen these type of swings, where you just kind of set a child in it, it you know, holds them in there really good, and my kids are little, so I'm pushing them, and it's going really great. They're having a good time. We're, we're, we're just enjoying ourselves. Well, as I'm standing there, again, this is a big park, lots of people. I glance over, and I see in another section of the park, they have big boy swings. <laughs> and I start thinking, you know what? We're ready. So, hey, guys, come here. I want to show you something. So I take them out of the bucket swings, and I bring them over to the other swings. And I say, hey, I want to show you these kind of swings. It's like, Dad, we've never done this. I'm like, I know. Watch this. And so I set them up in these swings, and I'm pushing them, and they're loving it. And I'm just thinking, this parenting thing is so easy. So easy. I mean, look at me and my kids, and they're doing well, and they're trying new things. And I'm just feeling great about it. I'm feeling great about my skills as a dad. I'm pushing them. It's all going great. And so Gavin, especially my oldest, he's having fun. And so I'm going around pushing them different ones. I'm like, I'm going to really, I'm going to push Gavin. So I start pushing Gavin higher and higher, and he's loving it. I'm pushing him, and I'm pushing him. And he gets to the the top of one of these, and he's way up there. And then he decides to let go. And once he lets go, he does this unbelievable acrobatic reverse flip in the air and he lands perfectly on his face so he does this full-on i mean just sprawled out bam right into the sand now i would love to tell you as a parent that my first inclination was to rush over to my child in need and comfort him but as a man of the cloth i feel a certain obligation to tell you the truth up here so really what th- went through my mind was, 
what are the other parents that saw that? And so I start glancing around. And I realize they're all watching. They all saw it. And I look over, and, and my wife's over there like this. Really? Really? And so I'm like, oh, this is bad. So I go running over to Gavin. I pick him up. He is, he's sand all over his face. His face is like, And I'm like, hey, buddy, you okay? And he gives me a look like, I don't even know you. Like, how could you do this to me? I'm like, Gav, buddy, you were so high. It was amazing. He goes running over to his mom. Like, yeah, she cares about me. I don't even know you right now. I glance back over at my other children, and they all have this look like, are we next? What's he going to do to us? I'm like, guys, come on. Don't judge me by my results. Judge me by my intentions. But the world doesn't work like that. See, I would love nothing more than to go, oh, yeah, well, let me explain to you. I'm really a good dad. Let me explain what I was, what in my mind what I was thinking. But no, people are going, wow, he just pushed his kid off of a swing, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how the world works. And so we have to have this reality moment to go, you know what? We don't get judged off of our good intentions. No one reacts to us. No one responds to us on our good intentions. And yet we hold on to them and we put so much weight into our good intentions. So we go back to the story in Peter. We see Peter's story here. In verse 54, and a lot has happened in between. So you had the original conversation. They're in the upper room. They're talking together after the Last Supper. And then they walk out. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's nighttime. And in that span of time, you have Judas, one of the twelve, who, who does this unbelievable, surprising act of betrayal. Now, again, we often read the story and go, oh, yeah, Judas. They were all surprised by this. You've got to remember that. And so this is one of them. Judas had had the Last Supper with them, and he was a part of it. And they're going... Wait, what? Judas? Really Judas? So Judas brings this, this little mob of soldiers and they, they take this person that they thought was going to become king and he becomes a prisoner. He's a criminal. And they lead Jesus away and, and the disciples scatter and they're, they're afraid and they're confused. They're going, what's going on? Because we thought this and we thought that and that's not the way this is playing out. And you can just imagine those conversations. And we pick it back up, Luke 22, verse 54. It says, then seizing Jesus... They led him away, and they took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. But an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, when you try to imagine this scene in your mind, uh, I think it, uh, you might think, okay, these questions happen back to back to back. Like, how, how much time are we talking about here? We learn this by just the, the kind of the clues in the, the passage. So yeah, the first question, then verse 58 says it was a little later, ha- had the second question, which is be less than an hour. Because in verse 59, it uses the Greek word there for hours, so and then an hour after that. So if you think about this, from the start to the, the first question to the third question, you have a span of uh, uh, within two hours. So it's not back to back to back as you might read it, but it's also not going on, you know, for hours and hours and hours. So within the span of two hours, Peter three different times completely severs any type of affiliation with Jesus. And, and you've got to ask the question, what happened? What changed? How do you go from these good intentions of verse 33 to and, and three, three different times in two hours? You, you don't even know the man? 
You see, I, I think Greg did a great job answering that question last week, and I, I just think he's confused. He's scared, but he's deeply invested in Jesus. He's left his family. He's left his job. He's left everything. He's devoted the last three years of his life to following Jesus. He's got this intense curiosity of what is happening, but not enough curiosity where he's going to go be a part of it. He just wants to watch. He can't, he can't leave. He can't you know, just allow Jesus to be somewhere else. He wants to see what's happening. So he follows at a distance. But, but don't miss this. The guy that walked on water is now afraid to tell a little girl that he knows Jesus. The guy that walked on water can't even acknowledge that he's friends with Jesus. See, that's the power of when your good intentions fail. You can go from this person who you think you are, and all of a sudden it's unrecognizable, even to yourself. You go, Peter, how, how, could you, how could you do that? I mean, this is Jesus. This is the person that you follow him. See, when you were at your best, your absolute best, your good intentions may be good enough. When you're feeling on, when the circumstances around you are, are perfect, you might be able to get by with good intentions. But life has a way of keeping things less than ideal. So you'll find yourself in a weak moment or in a situation that's not ideal, and your good intentions will fall apart. And part of this, this idea of growing in our faith is learning to give up these good intentions. Say, I, I don't have to cling to them so tightly. Then you get to verse 61. Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. So again, just imagine you've got Peter, he's, he's following uh, not close enough where they would say, oh, he's with him, but not far enough away that they can't make eye contact. And so Jesus looks right over, the rooster crows, Peter goes, oh, that's what he said, and then he has this moment of eye contact. And can you imagine that stare? Can you imagine looking into Jesus' eyes? What was Peter thinking about? Was he replaying the last three years in his mind? Thinking about things that they had done together? Was he thinking about walking on water? With Jesus, I'm sure he was thinking about the last thing he said to him and realizing he could not live up to his good intentions. He's filled with shame and just everything begins to unravel for Peter and it says he goes and he weeps bitterly. Now, from what I read in the scriptures, I don't think Peter was a sensitive guy. Okay? I mean, Peter's kind of your stereotypical man's man. He, he rushes into action. He says things before he thinks about them. He kind of is just there. I don't think Peter was a guy that, you know, would cry a lot. Uh, I, I don't think Peter was the type of guy who would watch The Bachelor, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? He's not one of those kind of guys. And so when we learn in Scripture that Peter wept bitterly, I don't think it was just another day for Peter. Or, oh, yeah, Peter's crying again. I think what it means is Peter is having a complete meltdown. This is not a guy who would normally do this. And so when he's going out, he, he's not just, oh, he had a little trickle down his eyes. He, he's, his whole body is convulsing. You ever had that type of a cry? He's weeping bitterly because his identity is crumbling. His identity is coupled with his good intentions. And they're all falling apart. So the question is, did, did Peter fail? Was this a failure of Peter? Now, we would want to say, yeah, of course, Peter failed him. But if we want to say that, we also have to say that Jesus' prayer for Peter in verse 32 was also a failure. That, that, that prayer went unanswered. Because remember, Jesus said that he's been praying for Peter. The problem is when we read that, we kind of glance over and we think, we just kind of assume that Jesus was praying for Peter not to deny him. Right? That's what Jesus was praying for. And, and then, oh, bummer, he, Peter denies him. If you go back and you look at verse 32, that's not what Jesus was praying for. See, Jesus is praying that when Peter denies him, that he won't lose his faith as a result of it. 
It's a completely different prayer. And he even predicts redemption for Peter before he's even fallen. He says, when you have turned back, not if you turn back. He says, Peter, and then when you've turned back, he's kind of forecasting for him what he wants Peter to do. See, Jesus wasn't concerned with Peter denying him. He was concerned with Peter losing his faith as a result of it. So often we think all God cares about are our failures. Now that's what Jesus is really focused on. He's focused on my failure. Jesus is not as focused on your failure as he is with your faith. And he wants to know what you're going to do as a result of your failures. I think we have this false dichotomy when it comes to spirituality. We have this thought, and it goes like this. If I have real faith, and however you would define real faith, you know, if I have that genuine, real, the good faith, if I have that type of faith, then I won't fail spiritually. Therefore, if I fail, I didn't have real faith. And so many of us get sidetracked spiritually because we have that moment where your good intentions fall apart and we walk away. And we go somewhere else and we fall away because we, ah, my faith must not have been real. But that's not what we see here with Jesus. It's a false dichotomy. It's what we learn in the story of Peter is that faith happens in the disappointment of failure. Not, not you know, when failure's not around, not as long as you never fail ever. No, no, no. Faith happens in the disappointment of failure. And it could be a disappointment you have with God, that you, you prayed something and you asked God for something and he did not answer it. That you expected God to take care of you in some way that he has not taken care of you. You wanted some type of a blessing and God never delivered it. And so you go, God, I'm, I'm frustrated over you because of this. Or maybe it's a disappointment in your own self. You, you can't believe what you keep going back to. I can't, that sin keeps lurking and I can't break it. I have this addiction that I can't seem to break and you keep going back to it and you're so disappointed with yourself. And yet what so many people do, tragically, is we say, if I have these disappointments, I must not be able to have faith. But it's the wrong way of looking at it. Philip Yancey said, the only thing worse than disappointment with God is disappointment without God. See, God's not afraid of your disappointments. He's not afraid of, uh, of your failures. He wants to meet you there. He wants to teach you something profound in that moment. As I reflect on the story of Peter... I see a parallel between Judas and Peter. Now, these are not people we normally put together in the same camp. But both Judas and Peter had a major falling out with Jesus, right? Judas betrays him, brings this, this group of armed soldiers, and they kind of capture him. But even then, you could argue, I don't think Judas expected things to play out the way they did. Because he later goes and kills himself. I think he thought something else was going to happen. There's lots of speculation about that. But I don't think this played out the way Judas had envisioned. And then you have Peter having this, this moment where when, when Jesus needs someone to stand by him, Peter should have been the one, and Peter denies him three times within a two-hour window. See, both of them have these huge failures. And when you look at Peter, you can ask the question, which is the real Peter? Is it the Peter who has the good intentions? The Peter who says, no, I'll go to prison, I'll go to death for you. Is that the real Peter? Or is the real Peter the one who denies Jesus three times in a two-hour window? Is that the real Peter? Or is the real Peter the one after that? who will go on to strengthen his brothers and be a part of the early church. Is that the real Peter? It's the wrong question. Because Peter was not defined by his failures. Judas was. We don't remember Peter today and go, oh, Peter, that big failure of Christ. No, that's how we think about Judas. It's a different way of looking at it. You see, faith happens in the disappointment of failure. 
And I love the way that both Luke and Paul, when they are recapping the story, they, they draw our attention to Peter. I think this is so moving. In Luke 24, 33, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and he appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Don't miss it. Hey, guys, he went to Peter. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Who's that? That's Peter. Both Luke and Paul are going, Hey, don't miss this. When Jesus came back, he made a point to go to Peter. He had some unfinished business with Peter. He didn't want Peter just wondering, Oh, I don't know what Jesus thinks of me now. He goes, Peter, we need to talk. Come here, I, I want to talk. And I love this about Jesus. I love that it, it points out that Jesus goes back and has a conversation with the guy who failed him. I love that. Here's, a, here's an edgy thought, if you'll permit me. What if Judas would not have killed himself? What if Judas would have stuck around? And what if Judas, just like Peter, would have followed Jesus at a distance after he did what he did? Could it be possible what those two verses we read would have said, and then Jesus appeared to Judas, and then to Peter? I think they would. Because Jesus is in the reconciliation business. It's what he does. Now, the fact that it didn't happen that way leads us to a question. Is it because Jesus wouldn't allow it to happen that way or because Judas wouldn't? And the answer is because Judas stopped looking at Christ. Peter kept his eyes on him. In the midst of his failure, in the midst of his identity crisis, Peter kept his eyes on Christ. Judas threw in the towel. So this is who I am. There's nothing more. And he was done. Now, while we often don't give up like that, we give up in some way or another. And maybe you know people, maybe that's been a part of your story, maybe that's where you're at today. You go, hey, I'm, I'm out, I'm done, I can't be a part of this kingdom because of, of what I've done, God doesn't want me. And it's that false dichotomy. You see, Judas thought, if I have faith, I won't fail. So when he failed, he concluded he had no faith. Peter thought, I might be able to deepen my faith in the moment of failure. And Peter transforms. And Peter becomes a different person after this moment because he meets God in his failure and he keeps his eyes on Jesus. Faith happens in the disappointment of failure. See, his story is remarkable because of what Peter goes on to do later. See, Peter goes on to, to strengthen his brothers just like Jesus asked of him. He goes on to be at the very forefront of this new way, this, this new church that was building and growing. He goes on to be a part of it. The, the, it's just an incredible story because he was not going to be defined by his failures. And yet, how tragic for Judas that he gave up. That Judas said, oh, this is all there is for my story. See, we love to root for Peter, but I think when it comes to our own lives and the lives of the people around us, it's a little harder for us to have the right perspective when it comes to failure. I, I had just this profound experience earlier this year with God. See, uh, it, about two years ago, my wife and I felt like God was putting it on our hearts that we were supposed to uh, be foster parents. In the state of Arizona, uh, the foster care issue was out of control. It's one of the worst states in our country. There are uh, more than 15,000 kids in Arizona alone in the foster care system right now. 
So as a state, this is just out of control. What's been really cool is the, the, the churches in Arizona have united together to say, we're going to do something about this. We're going to rise up and we're going we're gonna to be the church in this situation. So my wife and I decided, hey, we can do this. We, we can, you know, be foster parents. And so we began about two years ago to, to go through some of the training for this. And there's a lot of things you've got to get ready for. And there's classes and there's all these things you've got to kind of set up. So it took about a year and a half from the time we really got serious until we got our first placement. Now I remember in these classes... You know, we're sitting there and they're teaching us, okay, here's what it's going to be like, here's what you need to expect, here's what you need to be ready for. And they would talk about what you're supposed to do for the child in your house. And it, it's everything you would imagine. And they would say, hey, you, you might be the only person to love this kid that the kid has ever really experienced. You might be the only support system this kid has ever experienced. And so they're telling you, hey, you need to, to pour yourself into this child. And you need to just be willing to do whatever. And so we're like, okay, got it, got it. And, and that makes sense and we're on board with that. And then they said something. That was really hard to hear. They said, we also want you to do that for the parents. Now, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know if I could do that. I remember thinking, you, you want me to, to support the parents too? I mean, I'm already supporting the kid, but you want me to support their parents? I mean, the reason why uh, this child would be in our house is because of some form of abuse or neglect that the parents did. I was supposed to be okay with that? I'm supposed to just say, oh, yeah, no, I'll support you. I'll be there for you, even though you have done this to this little child. And I got to be honest, I I wrestled with that. I go, God, I don't know if my heart can get there. I mean, I can love this child, but I I don't know about them. And so I remember Michelle and I driving home, having these just heart-wrenching conversations about this. But at this point, these are all theoretical people. We haven't met anybody yet. These are just training. And then earlier this year, we got our first placement, a little baby you saw in the picture. He's a few months old, and he's been living with us, and God has taught us so much about the kingdom through this experience. God has taught us what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to depend on him for things that are out of your control, what it means to suffer with those who are suffering. I mean, all these different things we've learned, and just this incredible joy of living out the gospel for someone. And it's been unbelievable what we've learned through this. But I remember uh, the, the first time we got invited to go to court. And if you've uh, familiar with the foster system, there's lots of court dates uh, for, for the, you know, each case. And so as foster parents, you don't really get a voice, but you get, to, you get to sit in on these court dates and you can listen on the case and kind of find out more of what's going on. And so Michelle and I decided, yeah, we, we want to go to, to court and we want to hear about this. And I remember even thinking as I'm going to this going, I don't know how I'm going to handle the family. I don't know how I want to feel about them when I know you know, what they've done to this little kid, and I know what we're now doing for him, and it's just this, this protectiveness, this defensiveness that you naturally feel for him, and it's kind of us versus their parents, you know, for the well-being of this little child. And so you kind of feel this going in there, and, and so I'm just praying, okay, God, you got to help me with this. We go into this court day, and, and we're meeting family members that we hadn't met yet, and, and we're learning things that we hadn't learned. And it's, it's a very unique experience. You've got the judge in there. You've got all these attorneys. You've got different family members, and they're all arguing. It's, it's an incredibly ugly scene. They're all arguing. They're all debating, and each of them want their own thing, and, and it's, it's, it's tough to watch. But God did something supernatural in that moment because as I watched his family, as I listened to the judge speak to them, and the judge let them know, here is what's going on. Here is what is on the line. And I began to empathize with them. I began to see them differently. I began to have this thought, what if they had what I had? And all of a sudden, I began to realize, you know what? Even though they have failed 
immensely, which is why their child is living with us right now, even though they have failed, they don't have to be a failure. And God said, what if you would do for them what others have done for you? What if they had the same support system you have? What if they had the same type of church community that you have? What if they had all the things that you just kind of take for granted? And I began to feel something for them that is not something I would naturally feel. It was God shaping my heart, molding my heart, showing me something else. And I realized this is Peter. We can celebrate it with Peter, but why is it so hard for us to go, no, I want you not to be a failure anymore. I want you not to be defined by this feeling anymore. I want you to be a part of this bigger story that Jesus is telling, that he's inviting you into. There's a new kingdom that, that doesn't live on those old things, that you're not dependent upon your good intentions anymore. And suddenly I, I, I feel this desire to be there for them, to support them, to encourage them. I realize this is what it's all about. This is what it means to be the church. As we look at the people around us and say, even though you failed, you don't have to be a failure. You don't have to be defined by that anymore. And it happens when we give up our good intentions. And we say, God, I don't have to try anymore. You see, my, my encouragement for all of us today is don't get stuck in a disappointment. Don't get stuck. So many people get stuck in a disappointment. It could be a disappointment that you have with God that you cannot forgive yourself for what you do or what you have done. Maybe you had an affair Maybe you've, you've done something and you just you do not think you can recover from it. I watch story after story of people who just feel like they have forever ruined their life. Maybe it's time for you to truly accept forgiveness. Not just the forgiveness in your head. You go, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died for me. But I mean embrace forgiveness. Understand that you have nothing to prove. That when you see what Jesus has done for us on the cross, it levels the playing field. We all are in need of his forgiveness. And for some of you, it's time to embrace it in ways you have never allowed yourself to embrace it. Or maybe it's a disappointment with God. And you need to spend this week having some brutally honest conversations with God. You need to allow yourself to vent. You need to allow yourself to cry it out, to get out whatever's inside and go, God, how could you? How could you allow this? How could you not respond to this? How could you be silent in this? Whatever that is. And allow God to meet you in that place. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to keep us locked in the past, forever excluded from the kingdom that is here and now, because we cannot get past our good intentions and how they failed. I close with something that Mike Foster said. He said, don't stumble over something behind you. How silly would it be to be walking and to physically trip over something behind you? And that's exactly what we do when we allow Satan to define our identity in our failures. When we live with this false dichotomy of either I have faith or I will fail. Instead, like Peter, we need to all learn, you know what? God wants to reconcile all of us back to him. God wants to bring all of us into this new kingdom that is not about how good you are or how good you're not. It's about living for him. It's about keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that's all Peter had to do. And Peter became the person we know him today. Don't get stuck on disappointment. Faith happens in the midst of your disappointment and your failure. If you would, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I do, I, I just invite you. If today you came in here and you say, you know what? 
I'm in a disappointment right now. If today you would say you're stuck spiritually, I'm going to invite you. We have our prayer team up front. Let them pray with you. Let them meet you in that disappointment and say, you know what? I want to move past this. I don't want to be defined by this anymore. And maybe you relate a whole lot more with Judas than you do with Peter. But all we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus and allow him to shape our identity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Peter. Thank you for showing us that even at our best, it's not good enough. And it doesn't have to be. God, allow us to stop trying. Allow us to stop with with our efforts to, to be good enough and simply to follow you, to respond to you. God, I believe your heart is for reconciliation for all of us. I believe you would love nothing more than to bring Judas back and if Judas would have stuck around. And if that was a choice that he made. God, may we choose like Peter today to understand that even in our failure, even in the darkness, we can find you. We can deepen our faith. God, allow us to give up our good intentions and to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.